0: Go ahead and grab your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to finish out chapter 1 today. In fact, we're going to get into this chapter very quickly in the sermon. So do turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. At this point, Paul has been very light in what's going on. This is the introduction to 1 Corinthians. The rebukes are coming. He's going to... Uh, have to confront some things, some difficult things. And so before he gets to it, he prefaces the, the, this letter to the church of Corinth with things like pursuing wisdom and things like his perspective of who God is and how he even thanks God for them despite their shortcomings. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, I know you just sat down. Would you stand with me one last time to honor the reading of God's perfect and infallible Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, today we give thanks for your perfect word. Lord, we hear another Sunday gathered and ready to hear from you through your word. Lord, teach us, rebuke us, sanctify us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever received a gift that someone had to explain to you what you were getting? Like you open something up and you kind of just look at it and you want to react, but you don't know if it's maybe a joke or or you don't know exactly what you're looking at. Or maybe you've given someone a gift and you've before they even open it, you're like, I, you know, as soon as they open it, I've got to explain to you what's going on. Maybe there's some confusion. Well, before we get in... To our main text, I think it's important that when Paul is speaking to the things that the church of Corinth have been saved to and from, I want to share with you the gift that God has given us. And to give an example of maybe some confusion, I remember... When I was just, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, we, my parents had got me and my brother. He's just a little bit younger than me. And on one day, I don't remember if we had left school or what exactly happened, but they said, boys, get your, uh, put on your, your Braves uh, shirt and your hat, and we're going to go up to Baltimore, and we're going to go to the aquarium. And I was like, all right, sounds good. I didn't think a thing about it. And so we, get, we drive all the way up to Baltimore, and I had never in my life been to a Major League Baseball game. And so they, they, they tricked us, right? We get there, and we're walking, and we think we're walking to the aquarium, and we see all of these people walking. And, and I start thinking, I think I'm like 10. I start processing, I guess there's a ball game going on. And they were, we're walking, wondering where the aquarium is, and either my mom or my dad say, we're gonna take you guys to Camden Yards to see the Orioles play. And I lost control. I was like, Cal Ripken Jr.? I'm going to get to see Cal Ripken Jr. I'm going to get to go to this place. And then immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, who are they playing against? I mean, am I going to see Randy Johnson? Am I going to see Barry, uh, uh, Sammy Sosa or Barry Bonds or Mike Piazza? I'm thinking of all these legends that, that are in, going through my mind. And my dad looks at me and he says, or maybe you're going to see the Braves. Because we are in all of our brave stuff. It never like clicked in my mind that we were, and then when they they explained that, my mind was even more blown, like it, it just kept getting better. Does that make sense? And so sometimes we will talk about the things that God gives us here and now, and I think those are incredibly important. That God gives us things now like peace. He gives us joy. He, he bestows upon us love that is uncomprehensible. He gives us all of these things. But there is also eternal reward. Do you know this? That for all eternity there is reward for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. It says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is what John, in in this revelation of the things to come, he begins to expound and say, these are the things that are going to happen, that you're going to enter into a type of rest where there will be no longer pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. Can you imagine? There There won't even be any more sin. The removal of the first heaven and earth eliminates the fatal infection of evil in the cosmic order and gives way to God's creation of the new order where sin and suffering and death are forever banished. What an amazing reality, this place where sin is no more, even the fear of sin, even the fear of death. I mean, do you, parents, don't you have this sort of little bit of ongoing anxiety toward your children and the fear that you're going to lose them and the pain that you, you we always, even, even the, the idea of death can overwhelm us. And it's not going to be that anyway. It's not going to be there any longer. Me and my 8-year-old Ezekiel, we were we were riding down the road just the other day and he's asking about heaven and he's saying, "Am I going to be with you for eternity?" And and of course, I'm like, "Yes. Of course you will. And you're going to be with Jesus and and we're going to have fellowship with one another. You're going to be my brother forever." And he it just is an eight-year-old just gets the, he just kind of stares off and he just starts smiling ear to ear, and I can just see in his eyes and in his mind that he's even beginning to grasp the reality of the reward that God gives his people. Brothers, sisters, the, the pain is going to end. Some of you are sitting there right now in discomfort. Maybe your back's hurting a little bit, or your, your stomach isn't feeling right, or you have a headache, or, you, or whatever it might be. That's all going to end. The removal of suffering. And there will be a new Jerusalem that we will one day dwell in. And, it, and like this world now is just overrun with the, the nations and quarreling and those things, it will all be abandoned. The focus will be on Christ Christ. But the greatest blessing of heaven will be the unhindered fellowship with God himself. This is your eternal reward, that fellowship with the Father forever and completely divorced from pain, suffering, and depravity. From your pain, your suffering, and your depravity, you will no longer be attached to it. Because even so, it's not just the sufferings of this world, but think of the temptations that we face on a daily basis, that you will no longer struggle with lust, that you will no longer struggle with greed, that you will no longer envy, that you will no longer have a desire to gossip, that you will see one another. Even the, the, the person who is saved that you just will never want to talk to here on this earth, in heaven you will be unified in perfect love through Christ. Praise God for eternity with Him. It gets better. It gets better, doesn't it? I mean, in a world that is screaming of the the days are are dark, and yes, they are, and the days are evil, and yes, they are, and they're screaming of the, the oncoming doom and that the economy is going to collapse or that the banks are going to fail or all of these things that are constantly covered in our news, the best is yet to come. The world cannot say that. The world cannot say it's about to get better. But I can say, you can say, the things are going to get better. Now, they might get worse before they get better. But Jesus is going to be there throughout all of it. And so we can trust in that reward. We can trust that because God says this, that it is true. And so what does this have to do with our text? We'll look again at verse 26. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In essence, Paul is saying, consider yourself. He's saying, take a, take a look at you. Did you earn this? I mean, I, I, so I just spoke of that reward right? And so I'll I'll liken it to the story that I shared of my childhood. You know, my brother and I having shown up at that ball field, having no idea of what we were going to be presented and our parents have covering the cost and all of these things, But, but eternal reward, far greater. And think of all of that, all that God promises you. Consider yourself. Could you earn this? He's, he's asking these questions, he's even saying, even before you were saved, even before he brought you into fellowship with him, not many of you were wise, even according to the world standards. He's saying, before you were saved, you weren't even that wise of a person. He's saying, most of you didn't even have a real influence in your communities, and none of you came from a royal family. And so we have to look at these things as he's considering and saying, giving them perspective. Listen, you have nothing to contribute to this reward. That reward that we just read in Revelation, you you receive that but contribute nothing toward that. You understand what you've been saved to. Not just for today, but again, he provides for today peace that surpasses all understanding unspeakable joy, unconditional love, but ultimately eternal access to the creator of all of it. And so I think we need to be reminded of the wonderful gift that God gives us through His Son, lest we take it for granted or worse, we think that it's owed to us. That when we read of the eternal promises of God, we should not read them with the idea of that sounds about right but we should read it with i what what we're going to we're going to a, a baseball game what we're going to see a professional baseball game. We're going to see uh, th- that player, this player. We're going to see the... Brave. You should understand that the further that it gets, the more that it just blows your mind. The more that we read of God's Word and what He promises us, the more that we should say we should be in of awe of what He has given us. Not of, well, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. I have, I have been going to church pretty regularly. I have memorized some scriptures pretty recently. Many Christians become disgruntled over predestination and election. They say things like, well, I just don't believe that God would select some to be saved and not others. Or they would say, so you're telling me that there are some people that just don't have a shot. No, what I am telling you is that no one has a shot. There is no one that has a shot. The scandal is not that God allows people to go to hell. The scandal is that he takes anyone with him. And if you don't believe that, then you have one of two things wrong, maybe both. One is that you have severely downplayed humanity's depravity. Or two, that you have even more severely downplayed God's holiness and the treasure that is found in Christ. Because when you enter into the kingdom of heaven, you will not at any point thank yourself. You will at no point thank your Sunday school teacher. You will at no point, and and we might. I don't know what the conversations will be like, but I can tell you that when you get there, it will be thanks be to God. Have you considered your calling, brothers? Even if you have ancestors or nobility or power, you are still so far from the riches that are found in Christ. Don't you remember in Matthew 19, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and everyone sees him and they see that he is rich, he is young, and he is a ruler, he is, he's the trifecta, he's the, the perfect person for the kingdom of heaven in the eyes of the Jewish community at this time. And he comes to them and Jesus says, give this stuff up. And he turns away knowing I can't do this. And, and the people are baffled and saying, if he can't get in, how can we get in? I mean, they're, they're questioning, I mean, he's so much closer, isn't he? Look how rich he is. Look how young. I mean, he didn't just get rich over time. He's young and rich, and he's got power and nobility. He has the, line, the ancestral line. You are so far from the riches when you are apart from Christ. Verse 27 But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring nothing things that are. This is how God decided to work things out. That He decided to take what is lowly. What seems weak, what seems insignificant, and He makes it great so that His glory is shown. In case you you missed it last week or any week since we planted Mosaic, let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Jesus was in the form of God and He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So then He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and was not just born of a woman or and was not just born but born of a woman who had never had a relationship a sexual relationship with a man he lived a perfect and a perfect life and he humbled himself to the point of obedience and not just to the point of obedience that being death but death on the cross and then he laid in the grave for three days, and then he arose. His resurrection and defeat of death gave and continues to give eternal life to all of those who call him Savior. This is foolishness to the world, isn't it? The world hears this and they, they say, So you're saying that God condescended himself, put on flesh, walked among us lived a perfect life. You're saying he didn't sin at all and we say, well, "That's right." Lived a perfect life and then died on a cross and then rose again and somehow that is for the propitiation of my sins and we say, "Amen." Foolishness to the world because Jesus comes and this is why this is a stumbling block to the to the Jews. He doesn't he doesn't show up in in the the rich uh, where he doesn't show up in a, in a castle or in a, with a kingdom with great authority, he shows up having been born in a manger, the lowly, the weak in the eyes of men. This is the the great confusion to the world. and even when I read it myself and I, and I hear these things, I know. God, you have changed my heart because I believe this. This, I mean, I, can't you, when the world says that that's foolishness, isn't there a part of you that can kind of agree? Like, yeah, that does actually sound insane. That actually does sound a bit crazy that God would love me so much that he would die for me. And so he uses the lowly and the weak in the eyes of men but why why does he do that well it's a good question look at verse 29 so that no human being might boast in the presence of god this word boast means to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements possessions or abilities so that so that when we go to heaven we aren't we aren't looking back at our resume saying it all makes sense Just what I ordered. The church is the only place on earth where the highest goal can be discussed. And at the same time, a homeless widow can sit next to a billionaire businessman on the same pew and have equal contribution toward that goal. Nothing. Do you hear me? Nothing. You contribute nothing to it. And don't get me wrong, there are amazingly talented people in this room. Not just talented, but but smart and creative, funny, athletic, kind people. But none of this gets you any closer to the ultimate prize of Christ Jesus. Verse 30, And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus became wisdom to us from God. Again, before we are saved, the highest wisdom could only be found in this world. So before you're saved, you, do you remember maybe pursuing the things of this world and having in your mind the highest level of achievement? Well, if I can just get to this place, if I can just make this much, if I can just marry this person, if I can travel to this location, all of those things. And then Jesus meets us and all of a sudden our perspective changes. Our priorities change. Don't they? It's no longer about uh, the, the things of this world and all of the achievements. And, and again, don't get me wrong, like, Go after things, sure, like uh, be good stewards and and earn money and do do those things, but keep the perspective that there is a higher reward. Lewis, I'm going to steal your thing you, you shared with me this morning. He was sharing with me a statistic, and I'm going to botch all the statistics, but something on the lines of your children, uh, for them to become a professional athlete is like you know 1% or less than 1%. For them to become a famous person is 1%, less than 1%. But, to, but, but for them to one day meet Jesus is 100%. To the point, and and so the question is, so what what do we do with them? What, What do we put toward them? Is it, let me see how far you can throw the ball, and let's just focus your entire life on that. There's a greater prize. There's a greater reward. There's more to this life. Praise God that this isn't it. Praise God that the point of life is not just how good we can dress ourselves, Aren't the goals of this life exhausting? don't Don't you just get exhausted by updating your phone? Don't you? It's always a newer better version and you get the thing and it just feels the like the exact same thing. Praise God that it isn't just that, that life's Whole end is not just how nice of a car you can get, or how many bedrooms you can have in your home, or how big of land that you can eventually live on. Praise God that those things don't actually matter. I want to live, I want to do life with people that have that perspective. Because I'll be honest with you, the American culture is wearing me out. The rat race. I can't keep up, can you? It's exhausting. I can't keep up. And if you can, you can't sustain it. And so we have to look at life through different lenses. This world has its own solution and its highest degree of wisdom. It has manufactured a version of everything that the Father promises us. If you think about it, it does. It has its own version of love. It has its own version of joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The world has its own versions of these things. But they're all counterfeit, aren't they? They all fall short. They all are not enough. They are wicked. Through what lenses do you view life It's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting to view life like the rest of the world does. Better yet, how do you view, through what lenses do you view Scripture? Because when we look at the Scripture, you can even read the Scripture and put yourself as the main character. You can look at the scripture and say, you know, that I am David or that I am Jonah or that I am, you can, you can look at all those things and you can Jesus you can, uh, the text in such a way that you can pull out from it what is best beneficial to you. Give me three verses out of context and you can start any cult. Can't you? The cults are not without God's word. They've just manipulated it. They've misused it. Through what lenses do we see life in the Scripture? Because Paul is reminding the church of Corinth here that He is your wisdom. We spoke last week about wisdom and the pursuit of it. That the pursuit of true wisdom is through Christ Jesus. That He is wisdom for us. But Paul goes deeper and says that He's not just wisdom for you. He is your righteousness. Righteousness. He is your righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, it says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by His grace as a gift. "...through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins." It was not to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. I'm sorry, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you need to hear that the law of God cannot save you. God's righteousness that brings salvation comes apart from the law and yet is not contrary to the law. Meaning, you will be judged according to the law if you are outside of Christ. And so we must be saved from it. And so we talk a lot about what we have been saved for, but here we see what we have been saved from. We see our qualifications we see our shortcomings, and we must admit that that he was i mean sorry, we must admit the only way that we can have this life of righteousness is through Christ Jesus. The only way to be counted just is that is through a holy God who declares us just that through his Son, and so some argue as Often they do, once they hear things like that, free from the law, they think, oh wow, great, Like we can go and do all that we want. But Paul continues, he says that there is wisdom and that you have been saved not just for righteousness, but for our sanctification. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? We we are so uh, adamantly against sin, and rightfully so, and Paul is saying, well, if you're so against it, why are you still in it? I think Richard Baxter says it really well, and uh, I gave the quote to Dale so you could read along. It's in Old English. This is the 15th century. But he said this, Sin dwells in hell and holiness in heaven. Remember that every temptation is from the devil. To make you like himself, remember when you sin that you are learning and imitating of the devil and are so far like him. And and the end of it all, of all is that you may feel his pains if hellfire be not good then sin is not good do you know that satan wants you to imitate him do you know that 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 co- We have been called in Scripture to be imitators of Christ Jesus. That we are reflecting something, whether it be good or evil. That our sanctification is a continual pursuit of the righteousness that Christ has bestowed upon us. As a pastor, I... One of, some of the strangest questions I get sometimes, but one one question that always throws me off is someone who comes to me. This happened a lot more when I was a youth pastor. But they would they would come to me and say, "Hey, I uh, I'm just wondering if this is a sin. Can I do this? Look, if you got to go to a pastor and ask, then the Holy Spirit's already dealt with you. If you're sitting there and you're you're contemplating." And what I'm doing is is that is that sinful? Then I would say, praise God for his conviction on your heart. And don't come to me and ask. Resist it. Fight it. Kill it. They don't come and ask necessarily about the big sins, even though those, the bigger sins, you might would say, are even becoming more and more blurred in our society. The heavy sins, as some call it, such as murder, lying, drunkenness, homosexuality, the things that that we should just see as blatantly, obviously, against God's Word. And so maybe you don't feel as convicted by those things, but what about gossip? Yeah. What about greed? Greed. What about pride? What about these things, the things in our hearts that people don't even see that we're dealing with? Lust. Pride is a word our culture has somehow really attached itself to recently. The literal definition of pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. The achievements of those with whom... One is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are wild, widely admired. Pride. Full of yourself. This is where we are, right? And even as a church, we, we combat this within ourselves. This idea that, you should, that I should just preach sermons that build you up. That you should walk away here feeling more confident, Church, you should not leave the church feeling better about yourself. You should leave the church feeling like you had just escaped a disaster, that being self. And that it was Christ who saved you. We should always leave this place grateful, but not grateful for what we have done. Grateful to have been here, sure, but grateful that God has given us the ability to come into this place and hear these words and to sing songs of Him, but we should never leave this place puffed up. The largest church in America, the pastor has his congregation stand every Sunday morning. They've already done it one or two times already, and stand and say all the things that they are. I am this, and I am that, and I am these things. And, and he's just filling up, he's just pouring sewage into the minds of the people that he will one day be accountable for. God, forgive us for so, how so often we make it about us. We make life about us We make church about us. We make the scripture about us. The beauty of heaven is there will be no social credit score. The beauty of heaven is that there will be no competition in the sense that we look at one another to outdo one another in anything but honor. The beauty of heaven will be all eyes will be on Jesus. I've said it many times, but I, I cannot wait to get there and of course see my grandparents and loved ones and I've got a baby up there and I, I can't wait to see all of that. But just like the rest of you, we will run past those whom we loved on this earth the most straight to the feet of Jesus. And all of those around us will know exactly why. They will be cheering us on. Go. Like, we get it. We understand. We've been here. We see. We know. Pride is something our hearts often need to repent of. Greg said a couple of weeks ago, he thought maybe pride was the root of of any sin. And I, I think I agree. I, I really started to process that. And I thought pride is. It is at any point you exchanging yourself for what God has given. It's, it, pride is the sin. It's, it's Eve in the garden who says. I think that I can become something greater. Consider yourself brothers. As I get ready to close, it says in verse thirty-one, "So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let us boast in the Lord, not in our own accomplishments, because again, we are by the by the world standards. I mean, I, I don't want to. I'm not coming at you. I'm not coming hard. I'm, spe- I'm speaking to all of us, okay? But collectively, we're a bit of an unimpressive group." In the entire world standard. All right, bear with me for just a second. All right, I, I, I see you're saying I'm telling you stuff that you may, may not even realize about yourself. But like Michael Jordan, you know who he is, right? Right? Everyone knows who he is. You can say his name all over the entire world. Now, if I go to any other place of the world and I say Danny Lambert, ain't nobody going to know who that is, right? <laughs> Nothing against Danny. I can pick on him until the cows come home. I don't even know what that saying means. But we can You can throw out a name and you can, you can hear that name, someone like Michael Jordan, and you can know that, man, this guy, he has done some things. Let no one boast, but boast in the Lord. But when our name is mentioned in the world in a random place to random people, they aren't going to have any clue who we are but even the accomplishments of someone like Michael Jordan are futile to the things of the Father. That even the, the, the men and women who have built up the best and greatest kingdoms here on this earth will still have to meet Jesus. A hundred percent of you will see Jesus one day. And you will declare holy, holy. Holy, whether you are with him forever or whether that is the last moment you will ever see him. I don't know about you, but the idea of coming before Jesus and him saying and it being declared, well done, good and faithful servant are the words that I cannot, I long to hear more than any other words ever spoken And when you hear those words, you're going to say, thank you. Thank you. Because I didn't deserve this. I I didn't earn this. I didn't get anywhere to this. I can boast in nothing but you, Jesus. We are so often, we are too quick to talk about our own accomplishments and yet silent on the things of God. Sermon after sermon, we stand here and we preach to you and we mention your sin and your need for a Savior. Because you need to see not only the reality, but the contrast. The psalmist gives us that. Psalm 40, verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Consider your qualifications to the kingdom of God apart from Christ. But there is the third part. He doesn't just give us righteousness and sanctify, he's sanctifying us, he's he's molding us, but there is also redemption. Like the psalmist says, he has redeemed us. He has pulled us out of this miry bog or this miry clay. What it is, is this this slippery clay that the psalmist is speaking of where you just can never get your footing, where where you're striving, where you're struggling. And he says that he reaches down and he grabs you out of that, that foundation that is so weak and fragile and built on yourself. And he sets you on the rock. And he. He says, Stand up. He has redeemed us from the the slippery clay. And He has set our feet upon Himself. Christ has redeemed us. Do you understand? Remember what you were thinking about, even maybe at breakfast or yesterday? Remember those things that you were stressing about? I don't know about you. Did anyone stress yesterday for any reason? I did. I found a reason to stress. I need to be reminded that he has set me on a solid rock, that he, the creator of heaven and earth before the foundations of time. Well, I don't don't believe that he just chose you from the beginning. Then what do you believe? That at some point I got his attention? That at some point he said, oh, you know what? Brandon would make a really good ad to my team. No, he doesn't need me. It's, it fills me with joy to know that before the world was even creation, created, he said, Brandon, you're mine. He said, Karen, you're mine. He said, Dennis, you're mine. And we look back and we think of all the horrible things that we have done. And we say, it can't be. It can't, there's no way. I, there's no way that I could earn this. Exactly. Your sin is the only thing that you contribute. And He takes it and He kills it on Calvary. So if you're going to brag about anything in this life, why not let it be that you were once completely and utterly dead in the filth and putrid of your own sin? But God, full of wisdom, And mercy, He reached down into the miry clay and He saved you not based on anything that you had to offer, but rather His love for you before you were even created. Praise God, for He has redeemed us. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.